he put his feet up on his desk and he said, Robin, come on. You're trying to tell me that you're going to give up three years of this valuable work you're doing to get a piece of paper that you don't need. <laughs> Fantastic. He says, you've got a track record. That's better than any piece of paper. Right um, I said, well, thank you, Richard. That's exactly what I needed to hear. <laughs> Welcome to the Making Permaculture Stronger podcast. This is episode number nine. Today I share a fantastic conversation I enjoyed with Robin Francis, permaculture elder, designer, teacher, and many other things, who's based in Jeanne Gardens in northern New South Wales. The conversation was recorded in November of last year, 2017, and along with hearing about Robin's recent return to India, where back in the day she taught the first permaculture design course there with, alongside Bill Mollison. We hear something of her journey in, before permaculture, catching wind of permaculture, and then over many decades becoming a highly respected and renowned international designer, teacher, facilitator, and so on. So I hope you enjoy. I sure did, and I'll check in with you again at the end. Here I am speaking with Robin Francis, based in northern New South Wales. Beautiful permaculture demonstration property there. Jean Bang Gardens, reconnecting with you after some years, Robin. It's great, Dan, yes. Yeah, and I'm, I'm really excited to explore a few topics today. Two of the big topics, it'd be great to talk to you about your work over many years as a permaculture designer, and you've just got back from the International Permaculture Conference and Convergence in India, and it'll be really amazing to have a, a fresh report back from, from the action of here. Yeah. I, I don't know, do you feel, would you be happy to share a little bit about India and then we move on or? Okay, yeah, let's, since it's so, so fresh and... Yeah, 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 I, I, you did a little blog post about it which I read which is exciting but it'd be great just to hear, yes, you know, your, your experience and some of the themes and things going on over there. Now I didn't get to go to the convergence but okay. I was at the conference uh-huh. and I was there a month earlier for the uh, IPC PDC. So it was uh, an extended course, uh, almost three weeks long. Uh, so I had a, I've had a good taste of India. Mm. And uh, the, the course was amazing. We had 77 students from uh, 27 different nationalities. The most culturally, or multicultural, diverse course I've ever taught. It was really exciting and uh, a, a wonderful international team of, of trainers. And uh, then, yeah, of course, the international conference in Hyderabad at the Agricultural University there was quite something else. Over 600 people, I think it was just over, it was definitely 63, possibly more uh, countries represented. And it was quite a buzz. Uh, They had a full-on Indian brass band to start the start the mornings the ceremonial aspects and a little procession with the brass band from the the entrance to the to the auditorium down to the big tent the big marquee where the marketplace was and they had a lovely seed uh, collection down there in beautiful clay pots we took seeds from there to the foyer of the hall where there was a really very stunning a seed display and from there down the aisle and up onto the stage and lit candles and put seeds into a container of soil as a symbol of the importance of our seed. Uh, so it was you know, amazing sitting up there on the stage with Ananda Shiva and she gave her usual very rousing address on the dangers of the you know, big chemical companies and the loss of our seed diversity and the importance of regaining that and growing our food and fibre organically. and Yeah, it was, it was wonderful. And for me, it was really exciting to meet up with the people who brought permaculture to India. They right. invited Bill in the first place. There was uh, Vital, who was uh, one of the uh, original... Uh, Right Livelihood Awards. He invited Bill to come to India in uh, 1986. And it was after the IPC, uh, IPC2, which was held in uh, Washington and Oregon. They uh, 
US Northwest. And uh, Bill said, look, Robin, I'm going to Hyderabad in December after the course in Nepal. It was the first uh, PDC ever in Nepal. He said, would you like to join me in Hyderabad? Are you going back uh, via India? And I said, well, yes, I am. And the timing is perfect. So we met up in Hyderabad and gave a one-day introductory uh, seminar to permaculture at the uh, Goethe Institute in Hyderabad. It's all getting very eclectic, isn't it? And uh, yeah, met the people from the Decan Development Society, so uh, Vasant and Dr. Venkat and as young Indian activist called Nasana Kapola, Gopal, who was one of the founders of the Deccan Development Society. And it was just really impressive seeing the work that they were doing in the villages and particularly with the women, setting up the women's sangams and so on. And uh, then a year later, or half a year later, actually Bill and I went back to teach the first PDC there. So it was a lovely reconnecting with the with the old team. What really struck me being over there with Bill was his humanity, which often people didn't see when he was just up giving talks at you know conferences and convergences and pressing people's buttons. The depth of compassion that Bill had and uh, his powers of observation. I mean, the things that he observed and picked up. I think. A lot of people, I think they underrate uh, many aspects of Bill's, Bill as a person, also as, a, as, as an amazing observer and, and thinker. Anyway, it was wonderful to be back and to see Nasana, who has uh, been waving the flag there in India, initially with Dr. Venkat, who passed away, I think, three or four years ago. He was the one on the Global Gardener documentary. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, he, he was the one that really, he, he was the father of permaculture in India. And uh, Nasana was his assistant and then took it further forward and set up the Aranya farm and just really, really inspiring what was happening over there. Incredibly inspiring. Oh, it's great to hear. It's, yeah, strong and, strong and thriving. My travels and especially India was a big part of the formative processes that sort of eventually led me to permaculture. That was before BP, before permaculture. In the 70s, I spent five years overseas. Um, Three and a half of those years, I was living and working and traveling around Europe and uh, getting to know the old uh, traditional systems there, the... Uh, you know, traditional farming systems that were still functioning in Bavaria, southern Germany, and where the only thing farmers then were importing onto the farm was the diesel to put in their tractor. They weren't using any chemicals, they weren't using any fertilisers, they were rotating their crops. Their wives were still doing all the traditional food storage systems with the clamp storage of root veggies in the cellar and making their sauerkraut, so... Uh, and these were all things that sort of fascinated me. I was sort of a child of the counterculture and anti-war moratoriums and stuff of the late 60s, early 70s. And uh, what I found really fascinated me in my travels was the different relationships cultures had with the land and with their food and their agriculture and the village culture, mm-hmm. which I think was largely missing here in Australia and it was and over there I also and it was exciting to be living in a different completely different ecology in in Germany and uh, one day I realized that I recognized some of the wildflowers and you know like their names were popping into my head and I thought well look I've never seen them growing in Australia but I but it was things like chamomile and I thought is it really chamomile so I got a field guide book to the flowers of northern Europe and I had a few herb books and so over the years I identified a lot of wild foods and medicinal herbs that were growing in the wild and got to know the you know the mushrooms and everything seemed to have its niche you know the, the other plants that would it, would it would grow in association with or a particular side of the forest that you'd always find these plants on the edge and 
My Inverell high school education had failed to introduce me to the terminologies and concepts of ecology. So mm. I was observing these things but didn't have a, a name for them. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, to, and to hear, so a student of the cult, counterculture and some of those energies of, of deep questioning of cultural directions and those, um, mm. ideas. And then, yeah, finding yourself getting into ecology just following your interests. And of course, in a, in a way, for me, that's where permaculture starts. Is two, two of the linchpins, anyway, the, the idea of questioning the, the dominant cultural directions and paradigm plus ecological literacy. Plus looking at the sustainable traditional farming yes. yeah yeah so the system so those those three things yeah. were really shaping my thinking and it was in i think it was 75 76 we had a particularly ferocious winter and i was over it it was my third german winter mm-hmm. and i went oh I, I, can't, I can't live with these winters. They're too long. The summers are too short and yep. not warm enough. I'm a solar animal. I want to go back to Australia. And so we started to make our plans and save up to come back to Australia and buy land. And uh, my vision was to get some land and to develop as a productive, almost like a botanical gardens of useful plants that were grown together in a similar way to how I find them in nature and how I've seen them in traditional production systems and for lack of a better word I called it landscape farming it was my dream and then traveling through India there were a few important epiphanies that I had along the way a couple of the things that really struck me in my travels which very much shaped my thinking one was a visit that I did in Kerala we were befriended by a, a local student who invited us to come on the weekend to visit his village and go to a festival at the neighbouring village. And he took us to his village and then he took us for a walk around the back of the village and introduced us to one of the untouchables who worked on his grandmother's farm. And the, this untouchable was a poor landless person. They just had a little tiny hut of woven bamboo walls and a palm thatched roof and there was a strip of yard around the house that would have been no more than one and a half meters wide and that little narrow strip around the house was absolutely chock-a-block planted full of food plants bananas and pawpaws and eggplants and tomatoes and so much food growing in a small space and I looked at that and I went wow How can there be any hunger in the world when you can grow so much food in such a small area? And uh, that was was quite a a moment for me. Coming back to Australia in 77, it was uh, middle of 77, I arrived back. And uh, not long after that, there was an organic festival at um, Apocolo, just out of Sydney. And uh, Bill was speaking there, promoting the yet-to-be-published Permaculture One. Wow. And uh, so it was really fascinating to hear this guy speaking and talking about a lot of these concepts that I'd been dreaming about, but yeah. it had a name, it had a methodology, it incorporated yeah, yeah. all these other things that I was interested oh, in. Oh, well, yeah, so you were fully fully primed, you know. Yeah, it was just... Across, a, yeah, ready for... Oh! <laughs> yeah, so I couldn't wait for the book to come out and uh, subscribed in the meantime to the... Our permaculture journal and, and we found land on the mid-north coast and yeah, I sort of experimented with some of the ideas from the books but after it was in um, 83 that I actually did the, the PDC which was the uh, first women's PDC. Okay and who was who was running that? It was uh, three women who um, were uh, encouraged to do a course for women to even up the numbers. It came out of the first uh, permaculture designers convergence held in Victoria Buchan, I think, mm-hmm. in 19, early 1983. And uh, there was 70 or 80 guys there and only three or four women. And everybody was really disturbed. They said, this, this is not sustainable. And so these women uh, organised a course on um, 
one of their properties up in the Tweed. It was uh, Lee Harrison's place. And the other two women who taught were Judith Thurley from uh, near Canberra and, um, um, oh, come on, the uh, architect from uh, Pembroke in the Southern Highlands, uh, Susie Edwards. And uh, it was a very interesting PDC. It was in a tent. It rained most of the two weeks. <laughs> uh, there were two women that knitted their way through the entire course. So sometimes I sort of wonder if they go down the rows of one of their scarves and go, ah, oh, yes, that's when we were talking about swale. <laughs> So that was, did you say 1983? Yes, and uh, Robin Clayfield was in that same class. Oh, right, okay. And uh, Ronnie Martin, who's uh, now on the board of the Permaculture Australia and uh, also active in Northey Street, City Farm. So um, they're the, the three of us that are still well connected to each other and still going strong all these years later. Oh, this is great. Yeah, it's really great to be hearing the story. I was like, I'm not familiar. I mean, at some point it'd be great to hear because my understanding is that Rosemary Morrow, who's been a significant mentor of mine, my understanding is she did her first PDC with you a bit later on. Is that right? That's right. Yes, that's exactly 30 years ago. Wow, wow. Um, 87. 87. Okay, well, we don't need to jump ahead. I I don't want to skip the time between 83 and 87. So tell me, what happened... What happened next? <laughs> You've done a big thing. Well, I, I moved to Sydney. The course was at the end of 83. And so early 84, I moved to Sydney. Yep. Because uh, I felt it was important to get permaculture, a strong permaculture presence happening in the city for two reasons. Uh, One is I've, I felt passionate. It was important that we need to practice permaculture in the city. Yep. Uh, but the other was also that I'd, been observing how there was this back to the land movement that had been happening since the early 70s and people moving from the city to large rural properties either individually or as intentional communities and their lifetime dream just turning into the most horrendous nightmare of their life. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. They didn't have the knowledge or the skills to actually realize their ideals and to practicalize them so i felt it was important to also be teaching pdcs in the city to reach people and give them a, a good head start oh, right, yeah. so to, to catch them catch them on the way out so they went with a bit yeah. else. so i committed myself to staying in sydney until i'd produced at least two teachers that were prepared to you know that were city people committed to staying in the city and then i'd go back to the bush. took me five years to do that. Yeah. And Roe was one of them. So in 1984, I started getting permaculture happening in Sydney and got a list of contacts from the Institute and pulled everybody together. And then uh, next thing I was contacted by a woman called Alice Weiss, who was convening a uh, PDC for Bill to Teach at Macquarie University. And uh, she invited me to come over and have dinner with Bill at her place. Mm -hmm. And so that was my first one-on-one meeting with Bill. And he was really very supportive of what I was doing in Sydney, very encouraging. Mm -hmm. And I also was invited to go and sort of sit in on some of his course there in Sydney as a, as a refresher, um, especially the stuff around the invisible structures was really important. And uh, they actually opened up those days of the course to a wider public. And there were quite a few interesting things that came out of that, you know, city farms and uh, other initiatives in, in Sydney. And then, of course, that year was also the first IPC. Right, okay. In 84. And uh, because I was in Sydney, I was sort of like the port of call for a lot of people that were coming in from overseas. And the um, IPC was up in the mid-north coast in the hills behind Warhope, near the Antarctic beach forests up there, Puttenborough. That was uh, quite a, an amazing event. I mean, we really felt like we were making history and we were and Bill was there and David was there and Rennie Slay and 
Andrew Jeeves. Um, so they're the trio that created the designer's manual. Plus uh, Terry White was there who started up the Permaculture Journal and there were all these other uh, early permaculturalists like Jason Alexander. And a lot of those sort of early adopters, many of whom have just gone on to do amazing uh, work of uh, national significance. And it was also at that conference or convergence that we established the agreements or the ground rules for the PDC, for teaching the PDC, for um, offering scholarships for economically disadvantaged people to be able to access the training, um, the areas of activity and expertise that the diploma would be uh, awarded in and uh, all that stuff. It was so uh, laying that groundwork. And um, it's, it's growing, it's happening around the world. The first courses have just happened in Brazil and yep, yep. Uh, New Zealand. We had people from New Zealand. We had people from Europe. Mm-hmm. So um, there were some people starting to set up the Permaculture Institute in Europe and there was yep. uh, Permaculture Institute of North America being established by Sago Jackson and all these guys were there. It was quite amazing. And back home on the home front, um, yeah, Permaculture Sydney started to move ahead. We started to get uh, design work and we set up a company, Permaculture Services Limited, because there'd been several major jobs that we'd missed out on because we didn't have a, a corporate entity and all that sort of stuff. So uh, Jeff Young was part of that initial group, setting up permaculture services, and then he used that as an umbrella to be involved in several large jobs. We also did the design and consulting for Kamra Gunja through that. And we um, had a wonderful network of uh, people that sort of mentored me or that came and worked in on uh, consulting jobs with me that were you know, had a perma, had done a PDC, but they had um, a background in planning, in architecture, in uh, drafting and, and, and so forth. So it was, you know, wonderful working with these design professionals. Yeah, that was one thing I've been curious and always wanted to ask you because I, that's one thing I'm conscious you bring is a high degree of uh, competence in terms of, of all those, those skills. And I'd wondered if you'd had prior training prior to permaculture, but it sounds like you, you picked it up um, as you're getting into consulting in a permaculture context from people that, that had come from those fields. Is that right? Yes, I never actually um, studied formally. I've only ever been to university or TAFE to lecture. Right. <laughs> I mean, I, I did consider stopping everything I was doing to go and get a degree. Uh, that was uh, back in the mid-'80s. And uh, I spoke with Richard Borden, who was the head of uh, the Hawkesbury Agricultural College, which is now the University of Western Sydney. And the college was operated on the principles of creative problem solving and experiential learning from the Kolb School of Thought. And uh, anyway, I went and had a meeting with Richard because I sort of felt inadequate because I didn't have a tertiary degree and uh, doing my my Bachelor of Agricultural Science. And he sat back in his chair and he put his feet up on his desk and he said, Robin, come on. You're trying to tell me that you're going to give up three years of this valuable work you're doing to get a piece of paper that you don't need. <laughs> Fantastic. Because you've got a track record. That's better than any piece of paper. Right um, I said, well, thank you, Richard. That's exactly what I needed to hear. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, and my first job was, first proper design job was a, quite a large one. It was a 250-acre property. Uh, the uh, Sisters of Mercy were doing a, a project in the western suburbs of Sydney and they um, needed a, a feasibility study uh, to support their application for a lease on this land. And uh, I learned a lot through that. See, one of the things I learned was to trust myself a little better. I actually I, I wasn't feeling confident that I'd be able to draw the plans professionally enough and so I there was somebody who was a an architect I just finished their architecture um, qualification and 
who'd offered to do the design graphics for me and they were shocking. And I went, oh, my God, I can do better than that. So I did. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was an interesting process, though. They had a massive brief. I think it was one of the most ambitious briefs uh, in terms of a client brief that I've ever had to deal with and uh, making it fit on that piece of land and writing the report that went with it, which I had to write by hand. And then they would, uh, they wanted to then uh, edit it as they typed it up to support their application. So I never actually got a final copy of that. Uh, also, it was an important lesson for me in terms of copyright because one of their conditions uh, was that they retain the copyright and that I was not to sort of show the designs, show any of the work or talk about it publicly. Um, so, yeah, that was an interesting learning curve for me, mm. that project. So we're talking like 85-ish or what? what yeah, that was um, 84, 85. Okay. A lot of things happened in those couple of years there, but I've um, always been interested in garden planning and layout and before permaculture I used to you know draw up my garden beds and try and sort of plan plan things and I had a major interest in herbs and my property uh, before permaculture was a herb farm on the mid-north coast and and so designing herb gardens and all that sort of stuff so yeah I'd always been interested in design but of course the complexities of permaculture design I find uh, incredibly challenging in uh, a really I mean I like being challenged I like being intellectually mentally challenged creatively challenged mm -hmm. and if there's no challenge there's there's sort of there's no joy and uh, and just you know developing my tools over the years uh, just from observation, from reflection, from always going, well, if I was to do that again, what would I change? And it's always great with the benefit of hindsight. And just disciplining myself to constantly design. Like, you know, for the first 10 years as a permaculture teacher, I was renting. I didn't have my own place. And every place I rented, I made a garden but I would do umpteen designs of the place yeah, yeah. Uh, with different scenarios and um, different client briefs, I suppose you'd call them. And just to explore the possibilities of the site, because I think one of the things that I observe, it's uh, maybe it's just human nature, but it's easy to get stuck on the first idea and not you know, and get blind to other possibilities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, fully. Well, you know, I was telling to Dave Jackie recently and he talked about how he's noticed that often the first one or two or three ideas that come up for him still are, are cultural baggage or they're not the best ideas. And if he can just sort of listen to them but, but shelve them and, and then keep the space open for other ideas, that's when the good stuff starts to come. And, and I'm yeah. sure you see this on courses too, that initially yeah. the moment that someone getting into design has an idea, they, they, they get attached to it and they start to defend it. You know, it's a strange kind of, you identify with your idea and that's, that's a real trap for good design. Uh, and I tell you, that was one of the big takeaway lessons of my first major design. Okay. Was, you know, they had very fixed ideas about what they wanted and where they wanted it. And I could see that it could actually work a lot better with a slightly different arrangement of the different activities and elements. And so I presented two drafts to them and uh, they were adamant that they wanted their idea, you know, and, and that's what I should draw up as the final design. So I spent a lot of time drawing up the final design, brought it back to them uh, several weeks later and they went, no, that's not what we wanted. We wanted this and this and this and this and this. And I did the classic mistake. I put my foot in it. I said, but that's what I suggested to you when you said no. <laughs> no, I learned then that the client's always right. Yeah. If they own an idea, even though it's yours, let them own it because then, you know, it's, it's their idea. It's going to have a much better chance of being put into practice and it doesn't matter whose idea mm. it is. What you want is a good working design and don't get attached 
to your ideas. So, you know, just forcing myself to do different designs, designing starting from different places and from different uh, elements or different overlays. And it's one of the reasons why I always like my students in a PDC to be working on the same design with the same brief, but in different groups. And so I get them to develop their concept plan as a group and then take one system from that concept plan to detail individually. And it's, I think the biggest learning process, apart from, you know, the actual doing of the design, is then the design presentations because it just really brings home to everybody how incredibly differently you can design for the one piece of land and for the same client and their needs. And there's no single one correct design. There are many, many good designs and uh, there's many ideas that can be improved on. You know, one of the things that I've always felt passionate about is that permaculture is as people-specific as it is site-specific that you've got to ultimately design for the people and not just for the site. And designing for the people needs means getting to know them and, you know, what their aspirations are, what they actually want. And every design, the client brief almost involves doing a mini strategic plan, identifying the vision and some of the key goals and then you know, the steps to get there and maybe some timelines and benchmarks yep. for um, manifesting what's, what's possible and practical. The site and with their resources, financial, time, energy, uh, etc. You know, and just reality checking with people that, you know, they're not expecting too much or biting off more than they can chew. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's great to hear that, you know, it's a really strong emphasis for you do you, do you i guess you probably found too that sometimes that phase of the design can branch into something akin to a bit of counseling or you know you know when you're really getting deep into what people are after oh, yes. it's quite an interesting conversation and and to develop the skills to be able to navigate that territory and of course you know nowhere to, where to draw the line but be able to get enough depth in reality coming out of the people so that you can be aiming for something they actually do want yes i'm it's uh, been a few occasions where I think uh, let's get a permaculture design done as being sort of the last ditch uh, attempt to save salvage the relationship. <laughs> and then there you are, you know, this sort of piggy in the middle with <laughs> them sort of using you to throw their stuff at each other. And mm. it can be quite a delicate line to walk at times. But um, really empowering, though, for many, like, you know, I'll send off my client questionnaire and the number of people that get back to me and go, well, thanks for sending that. There were all these things that we'd never thought about and we you know, wanted to get this design done, but we'd never really ever discussed where we wanted to go mm. with this and what we actually wanted to have in our garden and what lifestyle we wanted to live and And it's wonderful that it creates a whole new conversation for them around their land, around their garden, uh, around their life and and where they want to go. And I think that's a really beautiful gift that permaculture design can give people is helping them to clarify what it is they actually want from life. So so often people just are stumbling blind from one thing to the next. Totally, totally. Yeah, in my own experience, I got a bit of inspiration from Alan Savory's holistic management type stuff. Not not the grazing side of it, but the side of it to do with helping people articulate what they're after. Whereas you've you've brought in, did you say strategic planning, or you've you've developed a, a kind of a toolkit that helps you in that space? Yeah, well, you know, strategic plan starts with clarifying a, a vision and uh, goals and objectives, and and where is that different to a design? I mean, it's sort of it's like you know, if you're going to really develop a realistic uh, brief got to start with that stuff it's not just a checklist of things it's got to be more than just a checklist of things the things need a purpose a function something that you're driving towards and starting with you know functional functional design so 
Uh, the way I like to teach process is, first of all, you have your exclusions, your restraints. So a restraint overlay, which, you know, can be from council, it could be from state government like APZs, asset protection zones for fire safety. It might be easements for sewerage if you're in a you know, suburban block. It could be overhead power lines. It could be ones that you want to impose yourself, you know, your riparian regions, the uh, areas of sensitivity, the sort of the no-go zones in terms of human production and, and habitation. And so, you know, uh, and after that, then you sort of do your, your bubble plans mm. and uh, look at the functional aspects of different areas and their potential. And then you start to sort of work your way down into your details but um, that's why I like David's principle, patterns to detail. Because with design, you're constantly zooming in and out from the two, you know. You're sort of looking at the overall patterns of microclimate, but then you're zooming into the very specific uh, indicators uh, of where there's frost or where there's waterlogging. And, and so with everything, you're zooming constantly you know, big picture to detail. And back out again. Yeah, it's really great to hear you saying that. Yeah, because I, I remember you actually, you commented at some point on, on one of the early posts I was doing uh, on making permaculture stronger. And I, in some ways, I overcompensated because I picked up on one theme that, that permaculturists can emphasise, which is start with elements, which are effectively details, and then join them together, assemble them to create patterns. And I was bringing in the people like Christopher Alexander saying, what does, it, what does it really mean to move from patterns to details? But then, then I got to the same point that you've articulated so nicely, which is it's yeah. always both. You're always, you're keeping both in mind and you're moving from patterns to details, de- details to patterns, in and out, in and out. And it's sort of almost through that reciprocating movement that's the design is emerging out of that movement and it's not, it's not one or the other or it's not, you're going in both directions. I think yeah. that's really important um, part of it. Mm. And essentially the whole of design is a patterning process. Patterning our relationships to, you know, the hard elements like the sun and the wind and uh, the the, the rain and the patterns of the landscape and landform and how that interacts with the wind and the rain and the sun. And then we're working with the patterns of microclimates, we're working with the patterns of plants and animals, we're working with the patterns of the things that were here before and are no longer. The patterns of the original uh, vegetation here, what have been the patterns of land use changes mm-hmm. over time to bring this piece of land to where it is. And then we're starting to shape the patterns that are going to take it forward into something new. But I also recognise the patterns of the past and mm. create meaningful patterns for the future. Mm, yeah, that's that's lovely. Yeah, and I hadn't heard that phrase you used before of a restraint overlay. The way I f- think about it is that as, as you, like even as you're, you're working with the clients or with people and helping them articulate their vision, in, in a sense that's a restraint overlay in the sense that it's constraining what's possible because whatever happens has to be consistent with that. And then as you map sun, wind, frost and, and the patterns of, of land, land use history and all that in a way that you're just building up more constraints that I mean when it comes time to move into the bubble layer of design the, the shapes the potential shapes and, and configuration of the bubbles is, is restrained by those overlays is that how you yeah and you, know, like, you know once you've worked out all your restraints you've got your windows of opportunity yes that's what remains how are you going to best use those uh, pattern the relationships within them and between them. Yep, yep. And, uh, it, and it's, it's really critical for your larger, more complex pieces of land and designs, but even for a simple, you know, suburban block. Mm-hmm. I'll do a restraint. I'm doing, did it recently did a design for a place uh, locally where there's down the end of the this three, 600 square metre backyard or garden block there's a three meter wide sewage easement at the bottom of the block and most people see that as a full stop oh god you know you can't do anything there well no you can still do stuff there you just can't build 
you can't plant trees or shrubs. But there's, you can plant your trees next to it and then you've got room for that canopy to overhang. You could have chickens running along there. You could have a mulch meadow there. You could have ground covers. You could have vegetables, you know. You could be your pumpkin patch, pumpkin and corn patch. They're uh, just annuals, so it doesn't, you know, if one year out of 20 you know, council's got to come in and dig up along there. Well, no big deal. But so often people see the restraints as being these full stops. There'll be the restraints of building envelopes or of slopes and, and, and things like that. But it just makes the design easier. You look at those and then you go, okay, now what is the creative way that I acknowledge these? So if it's a fire protection zone, then okay, how do we strengthen this with our permaculture strategies for design for fire in terms of the systems, the activities that we have in there, which elements are suitable to put in there? How is that going to interact with the whole? Or if it's a riparian area, you know, then then you want to get your local riparian species planted Mm. uh, back in there and your habitat and, and your bush foods and... And so that's, you know, part of your wildlife corridor in your zone five design. And mm-hmm. uh, so sometimes you're not actually imposing the zone five. The zone five is telling you where it needs to be. So I find, you know, starting with that restraints overlay, it's almost like a way of listening to the land. The land actually has the first say in the basic structure of the design. And then it shows us our windows of opportunity for our more human anthropocentric stuff to come in there with food production and buildings and all the rest of it. Yeah, yeah. So one thing I'm sitting with that I haven't really resolved for myself, but good to get your input on is, as you said earlier that um, on a PDC or, or, or whatever, that different groups do the same, do a different design for the same space. And, and part of the thing they learn there is that it's, there's a number of different possible solutions that work well. And yet on the other hand, I find that, the more you listen to the landscape and the people, the more restraints you kind of allow to reveal themselves by listening to the people in the place. Mm. That, that the you know the number of possible design solutions each time you go a bit deeper and you're listening, it shrinks. You know, it shrinks and shrinks and shrinks. And I wonder how how much it can shrink. Like I don't know. Like can it, is it possible that it would shrink to only one or two or three different? I guess it's a sweet spot thing, isn't it? Well, you know, then there's the larger decisions that are made, you know, within the concept plan. Then there's there's also the details, detail mm-hmm. design. Okay, so, you know, there might only be one sensible place to have, uh, say, the subtropical food forest because there's that one spot that, you know, is going to work in terms of its relationship to everything else. But then how you actually design that little subtropical food forest. Yep. There's a myriad of different ways that that could be designed. Yeah, where, yeah like, where the banana and the pawpaw go, you know, et cetera. Yeah, I, that's, that's, a great, yeah, that's a great way of resolving it. You know, at the concept level, there probably is a very, there's less wriggle room in terms of the best possible solution, but as soon as you get to details, it, can, it suddenly opens up again. There's a number of equally viable yeah. solutions. Yeah, cool. That's great. Something else I really want to ask you too is that, I've been exploring this idea um, and it'd be great to hear from your experience in your own place and working with others that the ultimate scenario is that rather than creating a, a fleshed out detailed design, you help people make a sensible first move. So, and so the implementation actually starts before you've got a, a diagram of the whole site and I've been exploring this. And to me, that's, that's, it feels kind of like the ultimate, but at the same time, what people often want and what the whole culture and market is organised around is the idea that the expert designer comes in and gives you a finished picture. And it'd be great to hear your yeah, any thoughts or reflections or experiences you've had in terms of that, that topic. Yeah, well, I'd say probably 70, 80% of my consulting work has just been, you know, walk and talk over the property. People that just want to get started. And so... You know, they just want to know where to put the driveway in, where to build the house, or if there's a house already there, where should they put their orchard or their chickens or, mm-hmm. you know, just to get started. And I'll, um, look, they're just so happy to get started on, on a solid footing and it makes sense. And uh, then we'll, you know, look at, you know, options where they could move on, on from there. Mm-hmm. Uh, doing 
designs. I do mainly concept designs. I don't often do stuff that goes right down to uh, detailing. But um, I did one recently, or sort of uh, earlier this year, uh, for a, a double block uh, in a coastal place. And they sort of, you know, want to grow uh, a lot of food there and have a little stall. And it was interesting, you know, and sort of the balance of their own ideologies, the family needs. And uh, I found myself actually speaking for the needs of the family a little. Yep. Uh, with that one, it was um, interesting. And I detailed the uh, fruit trees, where the trees should go, because they were sort of really struggling with those and not knowing the how big they'll get. And so I see those as being those sort of longer-term infrastructural plantings. There's things like vegetable gardens. I mean, you can create a mandala garden. You can turn it into... Uh, you know, you might get sick of a mandala garden after a couple of years. You can turn it into rectangular beds. You mm. might get sick of those. You can turn it into wicking beds. You might get sick of those, turn it into hoogle beds. I mean, it doesn't really matter. What's mm. important is the location of the garden. And then uh, things like your annual systems, they're going to change every year and several times a year. So if, if we can get the, the, the key perennials planted in good places that then support the social amenity, the annual production systems, the animals that might be included in the site. I think we're helping people get off to a really good start. Yeah, no, that's great. Yeah, it's such, such an important distinction. I think of it in terms of Bill's wording around type 1 errors. I don't know if he talked about type 2 and 3 errors, but I, I, I help people avoid the type 1 errors, which is the the, the backbone stuff, the, yeah, the, the high-level patterning of the whole site, and then let them go forth and make, joyously make type two and type three areas into the future, which, which are all things that can be rectified, whereas it's pretty hard to reroute the driveway or yeah, move a 10-year-old yeah. mango or whatever it is. Yeah. It's great. What I might do is, because a huge interest of mine, as you know, is design process, I might just try and sum up what you've, recap what you've said, and you can, you can correct it or whatever, and then, then it'd be great to come back to you. <laughs> to the, you know, the, the timeline a little bit and hear more about how these things will evolve for you. So you, you really honour the importance of spending a lot of time with, with the people involved in a design project. So helping them articulate what it is they're after, um, using strategic planning, articulating objectives, outcomes, steps towards them, um, and so on. You've developed some, some tools to assist with that. And then moving into understanding and listening to the landscape where a lot of what you're doing is building up these restraint overlays, understanding all the relevant patterns around climate and landform and land use patterns and existing vegetation, et cetera. Uh, and, and then using those two kind of platforms as a, as, a, as a foundation to move into bubble level concept diagramming and getting that feeling good. Or what Sometimes you get as far as the walk and talk and, and helping people make a first step sometimes leave people the concept design and occasionally get more into details where that's where that's useful but does that does that feel like that kind of what's missing from is that that, that kind of sums up your your approach to process these days or pretty much yeah for for you know, individual properties um most certainly because you've done i realize listeners not might not realize firstly just how much design you've done how many projects you've been involved in over what I don't know, 35, 40 years or whatever it's been, um, and, but also the, the, the range and scale. You started with the 250 acres, but you've done eco-villages, you've done community stuff, public street stuff, you've done a lot of private residential. Yes, all sorts. It's the, I love the diversity. Mm. And, uh, yeah, working also a lot with uh, intentional communities, existing ones, ones that want to form in the future and just got a piece of land. And yep. so there, you know, the social permaculture becomes uh, even more critical. Working on the designing within the bioregional level and, uh, that wider community development level. A lot of the design there is actually with invisible structures, it's with facilitation processes, it's uh, how can you actually facilitate the solutions coming out and arising out of the community and empowering them to articulate them and then taking them through processes to clarify them and prioritise them. Because, mm -hmm. you know, it's really important that people feel that it belongs to them and that it does belong to them. 
Mm. And the, the purpose of being a designer or a facilitator isn't to uh, stoke up your own ego of what jobs you've done and, and what wonderful ideas you've created. Mm. Uh, it's about how you uh, work with people to manifest their, their solutions, their ideals. Things like Jalambar comes from a very different perspective where you've got a, basically it's a development. And so you've got the developer, you've got your planners, you've got council, you've got you know, the council planners and engineers and various other, you know, government departments. And it was interesting with Jalambar because also it was the first community title uh, development in New South Wales, a rural one there. I think there are only one or two uh, gated uh, urban communities that have been created with that new form of land tenure. So there was a whole new form of land tenure and all the legalities around that to, to navigate and educate the planners and uh, the council and so forth about the, the uh, form of land tenure and how that um, gave opportunities to, to, to new things. Uh, so we broke a lot of ground with Jalambar and I mean, many of the bylaws that I brought into that community, council has now adopted. Mm -hmm. as standard requirements for any uh, rural development. And it's wonderful when you start to create things and then they become the norm. That's permaculturally the mainstream. That's what I'm passionate about, not the other way around. The community consultation for the streetscape and also just for, you know, the sustainable Nimbin movement and our food security it's just i find it really really exciting you know designing on that on that uh, macro scale mm. and that larger community scale and uh, working you know the the challenges of working with a number of people and i was called to do a weekend uh, workshop with a, an intentional community down the coast quite some years ago they'd been going for like, you know, 15 or more years. They were really uh, locked up with a lot of unhappiness and mm -hmm. uh, frustration and angst. And uh, so I started off, I said, well, guys, you know, what's your common ground? What's your common vision? Do you, do you have a set of objectives or anything in your constitution? And they just looked at me and went, huh? And I'm like, hey, well, look, no wonder you're suffering. You've yeah. Let's 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 focus this morning on finding your common ground. So, why did you actually come here? What attracted you to buy into this community? And so, from there, we actually by the end of the morning, we had a vision statement. We had a mission. We had uh, identified key objectives, and we had identified the areas of ambiguity that were giving rise to the insecurity and the friction within the community. And so uh, by the end of the day, we had sorted most of that stuff out. Wow. Yeah, I was going to say, you probably noticed people unfolding their arms and frowns turning into smiles and, and all the rest. Oh, that's, that's wonderful. What, yeah, what important and challenging work to be doing. Yeah, so there's just so many aspects to design that I just really enjoy and I still enjoy the challenge of something new and something different. Yeah, I'm realising, I think I'm going to have to hit you up for more chats in future, you know. <laughs> I'd love to hear in more detail about so many of these different projects. One thing I, I did, did have a mental note that I wanted to, coming back to the time in India just recently, in the context of you being part of permaculture since the the beginning before permaculture one was even published what do you see the trajectory of the movement what are some of the things that are happening at the moment and what were some of the things that you saw at india was it the convergence or the conference the conference i was at yes could you fill me in a bit i'd love, love to hear what the word on the street is around the world sort of thing well it was really really inspiring the areas that permaculture starting to make inroads into like we had our first a delegate from uh, from Burma, from Myanmar there. We had our first delegate from Bhutan. So permaculture sort of making, still making inroads into places where, where, it's, where it's new and where it's seen as being a viable solution. 
Mm -hmm. uh, the stories of projects that people are doing, especially in poor rural regions. And it's just so inspiring how they are turning the lives of communities around, the lives of farming communities around. Mm -hmm. And uh, it just gives you so much hope. I mean, I, it just depresses me when I start seeing these sort of white North American mm -hmm. um, uh, tirades about, you know, sort of colonial permaculture and that permaculture is all dominated by white male chauvinist pigs and okay. stuff like that. Because yeah. uh, when you travel a lot, when you see how permaculture is rolling out around the planet, that is a very small twisted view yeah. of, the, of the global organisation or the global movement. It is very diverse. There is a fantastic balance of the sexes. There are some dynamic women just doing amazing mm. work. There are guys doing amazing work, mm. alone, together in communities, and also supporting and giving women the space mm. to do amazing work without stopping on them with their egos. It is really, really uh, empowering and heartwarming. There's also a sense of deep sense of urgency that even though permaculture is sort of galloping and growing uh, so strongly, it uh, just needs, we need to amp it up mm. many fold to make a considerable impact on, on the world and where things are heading. And uh, so there's, um, there's the accolades, but there's also the, you know, a strong sense of urgency there. Mm. But, uh, you know, there's not really time to just sort of sit and pat ourselves on the back. There's still a lot more to, to get done. And the uh, challenges are huge. You know, some may be insurmountable, but the challenges are huge. And the sooner we uh, tackle them uh, in a realistic way, the, the, the better and the greater uh, change can be wrought. That's great. Lovely. Yeah, I wanted to, to come back because from, from the first PDC, which came out of the the gathering you went to where there was almost all the designers were men and there was only a couple of women there to, to see what your reflections on how that's evolved over time. And it sounds like you're, you're kind of optimistic and, and, and do see a lot of space for women to be doing amazing things within the permaculture movement around the world. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Okay, well, yeah, I'm conscious uh, that we're, we're coming up to the, the time we had planned today Robin but it'd be great to hear a few closing comments like yeah I mean, I mean it'd be great to hear a little bit about what's exciting you now uh, about the projects that you know projects you're moving into and what you're up to and also just any any take-home messages any any key kind of learnings any advice you'd give to to people working in the space of permaculture design and getting involved in the in the movement yeah well, what I'm into at the moment is consolidating things here at Jenbun Gardens. Our next big project here is our artisans workshop for the forgotten arts and survival crafts. And so that'll include a forge for smithing and making and mending tools and all sorts of other useful things. And we've got a big workshop space. Uh, that we're in the process of setting up for any kind of handcrafted item and um, particularly uh, bamboo crafts and furniture and so forth. So that's, that's our next major thing here. And I suppose in the bioregion, because I'm very involved in my local bioregion, for me that's an important part of my life and practice as a permaculturalist. And uh, so we've got our food security stuff pretty well under Rats, um, so more than 90% of our food comes from within a 30-kilometre radius of here, wow. including our grains and coffee and dairy products and uh, just about everything we need. We've got the energy thing pretty well sorted here in Nimbin, where you know, a good 80% or more of our energy is from the electricity is from the sun on a sunny day and uh, on a greater bioregional level we've set up our own local or an energy retailer uh, Innova mm -hmm. and uh, they're partnering with local businesses to you know do rooftop solar so uh, we'll be um, next year getting a solar array put onto the training center building I've got a domestic 
array on the railway carriages here, but on the uh, main building here. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then we'll just pay that off over time by paying our electricity bill. And so there's there's all these wonderful things happening on the local level. Mm. The next big thing on the local level is fibre to fabric. So addressing the whole problem of um, fast clothing, mm. disposable clothing and uh, made with uh, very toxic materials. Uh, and... Um, you know, getting our local fibre uh, production and processing uh, happening because um, if you look at the definition of permaculture, it's about our food, energy and fibre needs mm. uh, and building. So uh, I think the food has sort of gesumped a lot of the permaculture agenda, so important that we start to embrace some of these others. And uh, having just been in India too and seeing the amount of land that's now going into genetically modified cotton, mm -hmm. uh, together with all the Roundup and uh, so forth, it's uh, quite sobering and, yeah, big, big lessons to learn there. So that's um, here in the, in the gardens and continuing to teach and uh, both at home and overseas. So I'm, a, I'm putting sort of energy into mentoring uh, permaculture rolling out in China oh, wow. and uh, Taiwan. And so China is a, a big one. Uh, so I've been teaching a course there every year for the past five years, a uh, possibility of two courses over there next year. And they're starting to get some of the first Chinese teachers up and away. Oh, wow. Um, so hopefully we'll either next year or the year after do a serious teacher training course out there. Uh, but it's, it's very exciting. A lot of my work there has actually been more urban focused. But, uh, you know, I've had um, one of my participants from a course there. He started up an organic CSA mm -hmm. at the Shenzhen Golf Club. And so the whole golf course has gone organic for this guy's market garden. Wow. Yeah, and they're thinking about maybe turning the... I'm completely illiterate when it comes to the terminologies on golf courses, but they've got... It's sort of... It's a bit like an alley cropping system, except that there's no crops between the alleys. It's just grass. Right. Okay? So where they've got those vegetation belts that define their alleys, um, looking at turning those into food forests. Wow. And I thought, well, wow, that's just fantastic. And so these really interesting opportunities that people are, are, are tapping into. It's mm. uh, so very exciting. And, and that's what I find is important. With so many of the young people, and not so young people, that come and do courses with me, I sense especially, you know, with younger generations, there is uh, a fr the frustration of uh, economic inequality and uh, the absurdity of the you know the, the, the housing and property bubble prices and uh, how can they ever get access you know to or own ownership of land? Oh, so yeah, yeah, huge thing. Access rather than ownership mm. that is really important, mm. and you know you. And to then just share examples of people that don't own land that have got incredible systems happening, like commercial market gardens on the rooftops in mm. cities. Mm -hmm. uh, things that you can sort of access for a peppercorn lease because nobody really sees the potential of them. And we are surrounded with so much potential. You've just got to see, you know, which of those opportunities resonates with you and your passion and your talents. Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably, you know, the most uh, important thing that I see that I do is help people uh, in their process of identifying what their passion is mm -hmm. and what they would love to uh, do in life, not just for self-satisfaction, but, also, that sense of service, I think that's something that's been really lost in our society. And that's where true, you know, satisfaction and meaningfulness comes from. 
is not only discovering your passion, but how you can use that in service to building a better world and creating a happier community uh, to live in. Mm. Oh, beautiful. Well, thanks so much, Rob. I love your, love your energy, love your optimism and your... I'm, I'm hoping you factor in some holidays and, and stuff. It seems like you've got a very rich and full life. I hope you're planning to retire one day. Uh, yeah, sort of not. I'm not, not thinking about retirement yet, but uh, just uh, reframing some of what I do. Yeah, thanks so much for your time and for all the amazing work you've been doing. I'll, I'll definitely get some links to Jean, John Wong Gardens and some of the projects you've alluded to and, and other things in the show notes, and I'll definitely be hitting you up for another chat. I'd love to hear more about China. And, and we only got up to the mid-'80s, I think, in terms of your own timeline, so we've got another yeah. uh, three decades or something to cover in there. Yes. Um, but I know you've got a, a cold. I'll let you go and get some rest. And thanks so much for your time. Can't wait to, to chat again. Okay. Talk soon. Thanks a lot, Dan. Far out. What a, what a, what a journey Robin's been on. What an amazing diversity and, and rich breadth of, of experience she's had. I had no idea she was pioneering the teaching of permaculture design courses in China, for example, among many other things. Uh, you can reach Robin and find out more about her work at her website, permaculture.com.au. If you've got anything you want to pass on about the episode or want to be in touch with Making Permaculture Stronger, the website's makingpermaculturestronger.net. I hope you enjoyed. I look forward to producing more of these podcasts in the future, and I wish you well. See you later. <laughs>